session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Student number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. The shows are uploaded each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next week's show is The Journey of Humanity by Oded Galore. The Journey of Humanity, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality by Oded Galore. He is an economist and apparently in this book explores the, as the subtitle says, The Origins of Wealth and Inequality in the World starting way back and coming to the present day. So found that quite interesting and wanted to learn what he has to say about that. Let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about today. It is The Happiest Man on Earth by Eddie Jaku. The Happiest Man on Earth, The Beautiful Life of an Auschwitz Survivor. Um, and as you can imagine, just by that subtitle, The Auschwitz Survivor, it was a, uh, it's a, it's a memoir and a very powerful one at that. Um, and also just that juxtaposition in the title, The Happiest Man on Earth, a uh, survivor from Auschwitz. Auschwitz, which we associate with the worst horrors of humanity, um, and then someone who calls himself the happiest man on Earth. Now, I, I should add, this book was released, I think, just about two years ago, um, or almost three years ago, and sadly, Eddie Jaku passed away back in October of 2021 at the age of 101 so he he did go on to live a very full life um, survived by his wife uh, two children four grandchildren and I believe five great-grandchildren so quite a quite a remarkable life that he lived and in this book he outlines all of that beginning back to being born in Leipzig Germany and then what he went through because of uh, the Holocaust, World War II, and all that happened there. Um, as he shares, he originally was very proud of being German. Even he saw himself as being German first and a Jew second. Um, but how painful it was to then, because of being Jewish, his own country was not accepting him. And so he shares this painful uh, I shouldn't say a painful, so many painful experiences he had from going to school early during um, the Nazi rule using a fake name. He had to have a Christian name and was going to school away from his family and could not see them because he had to be away from them to risk not endangering them or himself. And so he went to school and even on his graduation day or they're handing him uh, a diploma, he was crying and they, they were surprised, why are you crying? But uh, a big part of that was that he, they were saying someone else's name. He couldn't even be himself. Um, that, but he shares then when he was taken to several concentration camps throughout his life. And you just hear his story and it's just tragedy and heartbreak after heartbreak from one 
you know, he says he gets arrested in Brussels for now being German, not being a Jew. That was his crime. And so he's put into a kind of a prison camp for that, and, uh, but eventually does end up in, in Auschwitz. And the horrors he describes, uh, reminiscent of, you know, everyone who has written about their experiences or told their stories. It also reminds me of Viktor Frankl in his book, The Man, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he discusses his experience in the concentration camp and just seeing the way they were treated like, actually, I was going to say animals, but worse than animals, because he shares how um, sometimes they these same individuals would treat their dogs with so much love and respect, much more than they were giving to them. Even he shares that some boy said that he wishes he can come back as a dog because then he would be treated well. So uh, just these painful stories of, of him, what he experiences physically being hurt, emotionally being uh, abused and treated subhuman, um, and his many attempts at escape, and he does escape different times, but gets stuck again even at some point. The final time he's surviving in caves, um, eating raw snails and slugs whatever he could find just to survive and finally uh, finds a he runs into an American tank and they rescue him or that's his last bit of that type of journey but um, you know so painful to read these we've heard these stories many times seen so many movies of of the Holocaust but each time it's it's heartbreaking and shocking to read what what happens in the accounts of what people experience and what humans did to other humans. Um, and as I'll continue to share, he wanted to share his story so that people would not forget and also to share, as he says, not his pain, but his hope um, with others. And so that we don't forget what happened because we often hear about things like World War II, the Holocaust, and we think, well, it was something that happened in history in this isolated type of uh, event and it makes us think that we're immune to it or it can never happen again and I'm not saying it will happen again as it did then but that some of those same principles of of hate division judging others finding a scapegoat um, reminding me of uh, the book the undiscovered self I discussed a few weeks ago by Carl Jung where we take and that book was written after um, World War II so in that aftermath where that shadow was still looming so large, but that we can take the evil in ourselves or the bad in ourselves and project it fully on some other group and make them all bad and make ourselves all good and the dangers of that. And we see that happening now uh, in the United States, even where um, both sides think of themselves as the smart, moral, elevated, good ones, and the other side is evil and bad and even wants to destroy the country and has bad intentions and really in reality that's both sides projecting their own bad sides onto the other so um, I'm not saying I'm predicting something of that sort happening now but those same themes we can see have not disappeared of the ways we unfortunately can view one another and treat one another so um, the messages here should not be forgotten uh, as he made sure to do in sharing his story throughout his life. Now you would think, or maybe the um, snapshot idea we have is, okay, you've been freed post-war, you must be happy now. But he does share, although the title of the book is The Happiest Man on Earth, that when he 
was first surviving after the Holocaust, he was not happy. He even did marry um, a woman, I think, Flore, F-L-O-R-E. Um, and he says he was not a happy man. He was, it was hard for him to, to feel good. And he does share that that changed the moment he held his first son, Michael, for the first time. All of a sudden, he did now feel happy and he vowed to always be happy or to, to put his work and his effort into being happy and sharing that with others. And then he had a second son and says he couldn't have imagined uh, it could feel so good or as good as his first son, but it was a new type of happiness. And he continued to share that with others. Um, and we do see he shares these stories of himself helping so many people and he shares how he was helped by many throughout his journeys that he went through of course he was also treated quite poorly one time when he was trying to escape he found uh, a house and he knocked on their door hoping to get help and instead the man shot him and he ended up with a bullet in his leg that then through the kindness of a doctor um, who helped remove that bullet, likely saved his life, removed this bullet in a concentration camp. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, that was the time he snuck back in to a concentration camp, which sounds crazy, but um, he really realized he was stuck once he was out and in prisoner's clothing. He actually snuck back in, I think it was to Auschwitz, um, because it probably would have been worse had he not. Uh, so we, we do see this story of this man, and I'm looking at the cover right now, and I watched him give a talk today online and you are very much inspired by the pain that he went through and even the way he writes the book he repeatedly will call you his friend as the reader you know he says my friend and he shares something um and you do feel this warmth from him and the sense that he realizes how bad humanity can be but also how good it can be that even in the midst of all the horrors that he witnessed firsthand and experienced being beaten many times. And he shares so many stories of that. You lose count of how many times he was uh, beaten, even sometimes close to death. Um, and even the, the people he saw die around him all the time. It was a constant experience that they had. However, he does share these incidents where people expressed kindness that was really uh, incredible as well. Those also are, are sprinkled throughout the story that you see. He was very touched by that, and you recognize he was trying to be that way himself. Um, and we also hear him in his talks share how much we can make sure to enjoy today. He says, tomorrow will come, but make sure you enjoy today first. Savor every day that you have. Invite a friend over for a meal. Um, make sure you're experiencing things that you value and value them as you can. So I was very inspired by the book. The first half especially was painful to read. You know, you're hearing each account and it's, uh, you know, bad, a horrible, painful tragedy after another, one after another that he experienced. And then even as I was saying, when he came out, it took some time. He said he feels still didn't feel accepted. That's another thing that uh, historically we might sometimes forget, just like when it still hasn't changed fully in America, but, well, slavery has ended, so we think, okay, that's liberation for black Americans, but we know that was not the case at all, and things continued, and there was Jim Crow laws and a variety of uh, experiences or persecutions that uh, black Americans have experienced and continue to experience to this day. So similarly, it wasn't just, okay, World War II has ended, and now um, all the anti-Semitic 
sentiment has gone and it's easy for Jewish people to live in Europe, that was not the case at all. And so we see those experiences as well, a first-hand account of really um, what he, he experienced or people experienced through the Holocaust. Because we see the pictures, even the videos, but hearing the human voice share what it was actually like to go through it. We'll never know what it's like just by hearing those, but we can feel closer to what that experience might have been like or get some insight into that. So uh, I definitely recommend the book. I didn't know what exactly to expect. I just felt that it would probably be powerful, and it definitely was, and very sweet. There was a sweetness about him you feel well, as he describes his life and who he is now and what he's gone through that was very beautiful um, and recognizing the more meaningful things in life. He, he shared something in the talk about if you have good friends and your health, you're a millionaire. Basically, that's what makes you the more th- most wealthy is to have those people around you and to have your, your health. So very happy to have read this book, and I hope you will too. Again, the book is The Happiest Man on Earth, The Beautiful Life of an Auschwitz Survivor by Eddie Jaku. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thanks for calling. Are you with me? Yes. Uh, hi, doctor. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. I hope that you can help me. I have been thinking about something that I think is a very big problem uh, for me right now with my son who is 45 years old. Mm-hmm. He is my firstborn and after him I have two daughters, um, one seven years younger and the other one nine years younger than him. Okay. I have to say he, my son was four years old when we came to America. Um, he is very bright. Uh, he always did very well in school. He had a lot of friends. Um, he has a good job. He has a good income. He's healthy, at least uh, physically healthy. He has a good position in his job. Um, but he rarely is, feels happy. Um, the reason I'm calling today is not this. These are, I'm telling you, only as a background. But the main thing is that he doesn't feel that he's happy. And he, he even says that if he puts everything on paper and objectively looks at all these facts about his life, he should feel happy. He lives where he wants, very close um, you know, to the beach, actually. I, I'm calling you from the East Coast, but my son, long, long time ago, had decided that he wanted to live in West Coast, where he would be close to the water and he could swim almost all year round. So after working on the East Coast for a few years, he managed and he found a good job and he went and he's living close to you. Okay. Uh, in a apartment very close to the beach. So everything on the paper would say that he has to feel happy, but he doesn't. And he has done Landmark. I don't know if you're familiar with Landmark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He has done Landmark. He has done a 
a lot of things. He has done a ton of um, therapy. Um, the other thing is that he has some anxiety. He takes some medication because he, uh, you know, he has a, a psychologist and a, um, uh, someone who gives him medication. Okay. He has also a little bit of OCD, and the OCD shows itself in his um, need to take uh, to make a um, to-do list. I mean, everybody has more or less a to-do list, but his to-do list is very long. And he spends a lot of time looking at his to-do list and making his to-do list. Okay. This is just what I wanted you to know as a background. Got but it. the reason that I'm calling... Oh, one more thing, two more things, actually. I know that he occasionally uh, smokes pot, mm -hmm. and he occasionally also uh, drinks. Okay. And one time, I think, he overdid, con combined the two, and he had an episode that neighbors were worried about him because uh, apparently he was screaming, and later he didn't remember anything. That happened once. Okay. Uh, all this uh, is a background to bring me to why I'm worried about him today. Um, this is the, his present um, relationship with a woman. My son has never been married, and as I said, he's 45. And when he was younger, and as a mother, I would say, what do you think about you know, building a family, getting married, having children? He would tell me that children, having children scares him. Mm -hmm. Children take a lot out of you. It's difficult to raise children. So he doesn't want to have children. And if he doesn't want to have children, he doesn't see any need to get married. Okay. Because let me ask you, get married, yeah. you don't want to have children. And what does he do uh, for work? He is an actuary. Okay. Okay. Um, and he and he also would add that monogamy does not work for him. He could never see himself as a monogamous person. Mm -hmm. So he assumes if he's not going to be monogamous, he shouldn't, you know, commit to anybody. And that was what his philosophy was. And as a mother, even though, you know, I'm an Iranian woman and I want to have, you know, we are used to seeing some kind of past you know, in front of our children. I did not nag him. I just told him, make sure that, you know, you won't be sad when you end up maybe older and see that you're alone by yourself. And on the other hand, he would say uh, that if you look at the rate of divorce and you see 50% of marriages end up in divorce, if there was anything else that failed 50%, people probably wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. So that was all his reasoning. Okay. And for a while he had a long, this long time relationship with a woman who was maybe 12, 13 years older than him. They each had their own apartment and they would you know, meet whenever they had time and they seemed to have a good relationship, enjoyable. And that ended because she had to leave for some personal uh, reasons, go to another state. And then after that, he had some other relationships. 
short time, nothing really meaningful that much. Uh, but this, about seven months ago, she um, he started uh, dating this woman who I think is 39 years old. She has a um, 10-year-old son from another relationship, not a marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, the son has a lot of learning disabilities and a lot of um, maybe mental problems. Okay. Uh, the son usually, most of the time, lives with uh, his mother and only visits uh, his father once in a while o- over the weekends. Um, both my son and his girlfriend call the father a loser because, for instance, even though he is a father of a 10-year-old, he doesn't earn enough money to be able to even afford a one-bedroom by himself. He lives with a um, uh, male roommate. Okay. Now, clearly, clearly, I mean, I get the sense it's pretty obvious you don't want him to date this woman. That's right. Okay. And yeah. Not only date, yeah. because I tell you uh, one thing, is that um, early on, like after two months, m- my son and this woman were talking about her moving in with her son into my son's apartment. Mm-hmm. Now, their, their reasoning was that even though it was only two months and they hadn't known each other for that long, the reason was that they thought that if she moves into my son's apartment because it's in a better neighborhood, the son could go to a better school and maybe that would help him with his problems. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to tell you, my son has never lived with anybody else okay. all these years. And when we told her, and the, and the other thing is that um, the son doesn't like my son that much. Mm-hmm. But the mother wanted to move in again because they thought that it would be better for him to go to a better school district. Got it. Okay. Now, the thing is that when she thought that this son doesn't like to be with my son, she decided to send him to live with the father, obviously forgetting the main reason for them wanting for for her to move in, which was the son going to a better school, which would never happen if he was going to live with his father in another neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But then, on the other hand, what bothers me a lot and worries me is that this woman has told my son that she has made her plan that by the age of 40, she has to be married. So now she's 39. Mm-hmm. And even though she has a job, she has been so so eager to come and live with my son. And my son, I don't know why he has forgotten all his pledges and all his previous concerns and wants to start a very, I mean, he has started a very serious relationship with this woman. Mm-hmm. So here now, we are. What, yeah. So sorry, go ahead. No, no, yeah. So I mean, I, yeah, I get it. One more thing that sure. bothers me a lot is that I say, for instance, when you look at the past and how you have done 
wrong things, it means something about your psyche, about your capabilities. Because this woman got got um, in a relationship with someone that they they she calls him a loser. Yeah. She says he lives in a, in California and hasn't been able to have even a driver's license. Mm-hmm. To this, that's why they call him a loser and how his income is low. But she, at the age of uh, 27, got pregnant from him, and he, she stayed with him for five whole years. So, you know, she has done all these things in her past. Yeah. And on top of everything, what I really don't like as an, an, an Iranian woman, you, you can understand me maybe better, she is also on top of uh, her job, she is a paralegal but she also does belly dancing on the side. Mm-hmm. And to me, for a woman to dress like that and, and dance for mainly men, that's a demeaning thing. Okay. So, and I, that part also bothers yes, me. Yes, clearly a lot bothers you about her. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but the, the end of the, at the end of the day, and even you're telling me all this, which does give me information about the relationship, but at the end of the day, neither you nor I are going to decide if your son is going to stay with this woman or what he wants to do when it comes to her. And that's something that will definitely be a big part of our conversation is recognizing that is you could think she's the worst person for him. You can think whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to accept that it's going to be his decision to make. And just as a general I would say for you to recognize that you can't control your relationship with him you can only affect your relationship with your son and that that needs to be your focus more than how do I get him away from her or break them up or convince him that she's wrong for him or you know that he's making a mistake or whatever it might be because Um, usually the way these things play out is that you just mess up your relationship with him and whatever happens with them happens more than anything else. So it's, it might be very difficult to accept that, but I I do think even if he was much younger, I would say that, but at 45, recognizing that if he wants your advice on it, of course you can share that, but to think you have to find a way in that more than likely will just damage your relationship with him. But now I'm, I'm sure you've already shared a lot of your opinions with him or had conversations. Yes. So tell yes. me what's happened between you and him when it comes to this relationship. Actually, he asked me. Okay, good. He asked me himself. And he was very good. He sat down and he heard everything. He didn't get angry. And I told him everything. I didn't tell him that much about her being a belly dancer, how how it bothered me. Mm-hmm. But I told him everything about her past and how her decisions have been and how eager she looks to be, she seems to be. So I said that in my eyes, we cannot be sure whether she wants you for who you are or for what you can give her. And I said, you know, you want to know that people want you for who you are. Yeah. Not that you can be, um, you know, uh, 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 just for your, uh, for her, 
financial security in the future. Well, we, I mean, and in a way, we can't know that for sure with anyone. Um, maybe with her, you feel like there's more reasons that you think that's the case. Did he? Did you ask her what he likes about her? Yes, and um, it wasn't really very, very good because. He, he said, for instance, that she's not a good mother. He said it himself. I said, do you think she's a good mother? And he said, no, she's not a good mother. And I said, if somebody is not even a good mother, how, how do you expect her to be a good mate for you? Sure, but, but I asked you, what did he say he likes about okay. her? Well, the reason why, you know, I think that was it. That's I think that's how you feel is that you don't want to even look at the good of it or what he likes because well, you're so I, against I'll it. I'll tell you what yeah. he said to me as very good. He said that we have good times together. Mm-hmm. And he told me, I don't know if I should say that on the radio. He said yeah, that I, I, I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah. She is the only person that he can cuddle and sleep all night. Okay. That's what the good thing is about her. That's not okay, but that that's not a bad thing. That's uh, not a bad thing, yeah. but that's the only thing he told me because I have listened to your father for ages mm-hmm. and I said Dr. Holakwe, my son, my kids all know your do- your father very well because every time we talk I have a few quotes <laughs> from your father. So I, I said tell me three things. So he said we have a good time and that he can cuddle all night. Two things. Yeah. Not very, not very good. I, I get what you're saying. That's not so convincing. Although that the the cuddling itself might seem like it's okay. Well, that's just cuddling, but it could show some level where he feels comfortable with her, where he can let her uh, in. Yes. You it know, it is important. I'm not denying. That. No, and and it is important. It also does seem like the way you described your son. He has a very hard time letting someone in, or he. You know, there's a way you were talking about the OCD and the some kind of perfectionism. It did seem like there was an anxiety of getting close that he had, or this, you know, and the arguments he had, or that you shared, or like monogamy not being for him, or marriage. You know, there's there's truth to some of those things to say that it can be have some validity. But I got the sense that he was someone who just didn't want to get close to anyone, or wanted to just um, keep that space because it felt safer. Now. As is often the case for people, they're afraid of it, but they also want it. Like, we want to feel close, we want to feel connected, but we might be afraid of it. And so his answer in general was that, oh, I never want to really get that close to anyone. And now what happened here with this woman, it's not totally clear. Um, And I do want us to continue our discussion, but as I mentioned, with the mindset that, of course, we're not going to make the decision. So even if you and I conclude, oh, yeah, this is a bad relationship, where does that leave you? You know, right. and that's something we have to think about. So we're at a, a commercial break, but I want to continue. So let's uh, let's talk after the break, okay? Thank you. Sure, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. So before the break, you were sharing about your son's relationship. You're really concerned about, um, as I shared whether you're approving or not, or even if whether I think it's a good relationship or not, at the end of the day, it's between them to figure it out. So you were saying he's talked to you, though, and asked for your opinion, and you shared you were not, you know, you shared uh, what you didn't like, you asked him what he liked, and you weren't so convinced, but what what happened from there? Was there a conversation of you either pushing him one way? I think at the end he said that 
he knows that uh, he should not ask them to move in. And then he told me that uh, he thinks that he should break up. Mm-hmm. But he told me that he is kind of scared of breaking up. He's kind of scared of being alone, mm. mm-hmm. which I understand totally. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then after that, he has told uh, us, it's me and my husband, that uh, he doesn't want to talk to us about this anymore. Mm. That's it. That we both, my husband also uh, thinks the same. Even, you know, one of the sisters said the same thing to him. Um, and even some of his friends have so- told him that. And when you say that, you mean that to break, that he should not the be right thing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and then he said, that's it. You all told me too much. And even he told me, Mom, you told me too much. You're in my head all the time. Mm. So he doesn't want to talk to me at mm-hmm. all right now about anything. And... Uh, so the, this is where we stand, but yeah. it seems that he is still continuing because he talks to my husband more, and it seems that they are continuing. Mm-hmm. The, the, what is really scary to me is that I don't think he, he knows this woman because he's so smitten by her that I don't think he is working with his, with his brain. Like mm-hmm. he was telling me she's very shy. And I said, I, I, do, I don't know her. I haven't seen her. I haven't talked to her. But I find it hard to believe that a shy woman would be able to dress as a belly dancer and dance in a restaurant where men are sitting and watching her. I mean, yeah. I, I, well, I understand if a bunch of women all are dressed in that uh, uh, costume and they are dressing, uh, they are dancing yeah. for their own pleasure but to be the object of all those eyes dressed like that, I think that a shy woman cannot do that. Well, I know, I, I, clearly you're not a fan of her, her belly dancing. That that much is clear. Um, and now as far as him knowing her or not and, and being shy, I, I obviously don't know her, and I get, get what you say, that that doesn't sound like a thing a shy person would do. But, you know, when people do perform actors, singers, sometimes they can be very shy people or people that don't like to actually in some ways have attention on them and then they can go perform and it could seem very much like someone who's comfortable being in the spotlight. So yeah. it, it doesn't mean she's not shy in some other way. I don't know what he meant by that. Yeah. So I, I get what you mean that it doesn't strike you as shy, but it doesn't mean we, we know her either that she can't be that. Um, now, you know, in relationships and in love, we do use our our brain, but also our heart gets involved, or feelings get involved as well. You're afraid he's turned that part off, and the way you describe him, he's a very calculated person, even in his work. Uh, I don't know so much about it, but it's I understand being an actuary is about making calculations and predictions yes, and things. Yeah, he's so, good in math. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, and then, you know, those types of decisions, there's much more clarity than in relationships where things are very much more vague and blurry. So. In your mind, he's turned that part off and he's just going with some feelings or, you know, maybe she's come in and made him not feel alone and something about that and makes him feel good. But you feel like it's not the right way to get that need fulfilled. And so uh, I could see that, that the way you described him, he was not allowing for that. And somehow either if it's like her being a bit different in some way, her pushing it more in some way, maybe those things allowed for him to let her come in more and now 
he does feel good about it, even if he thinks it might not be the right thing. Um, but going back to his conversations with all of you, now on one hand, he asked you for your advice. So it wasn't just some unsolicited advice or trying to break That's them up. Right. Um, but it does seem like whether it was just a few things come to my mind. One is he himself has these doubts. And so when you say those things, he didn't like hearing it and doesn't want to hear it more because he wants things to continue. But we also have to look at how you have said things. Did it come off strong in a way that made him not want to talk about it anymore? Or even, you know, you said you haven't met her. It, maybe if he had a, a girlfriend you approved of, you would want to meet them. And so he feels that you're just not for this relationship. So he doesn't want to have you involved. And and this is what gets difficult because when we disapprove of someone's relationship and make it very clear that we disapprove and think they should break up, um, it makes it hard for them to be as open with us because they know where we stand. So I've worked with many families where uh, they're not approving of their child's relationship and we talk about it and in front of their parents, they're defending the person and saying how wonderful they are. But then when I'm talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, they share their own concerns or the things that they're worried about, but they wouldn't share them to the parents because they think, well, they already hate him or hate her, and I don't want to add fuel to that or to prove them right, and so they keep that away. So, you know, if it's possible, if he's saying he just won't talk to you anymore, and not just, again, for this goal of breaking them up, because I wouldn't want to make that your goal, but in connecting with your son, uh, you can see if you can reconnect in a way of saying, well, I, I want to hear more about what you feel in the relationship or what you're going through in the relationship and focus less on convincing him and changing his mind, but more about understanding him. And really, as is the case with our loved ones, we always want to help them make their best decision for them, not the one we think is best for them. But sometimes we have a hard time making a good choice, even if we know it's right. So that would to me be more your role than, okay, if it's wrong, we have to find a way to break them up because that almost always just backfires and it's not going to, it's not going to affect their relationship. It's just going to likely affect your relationship with your son, which is not mm -hmm. what we want. Yeah. How are things with your son and you now? Well, um, actually he was here uh, visiting us uh, around Mother's Day. Mm -hmm. And that's when we had a lot of conversations and after that, he went back to the West Coast, and uh, that's when he told uh, his father that uh, he will only talk to him, uh, and also not about, uh, you know, about uh, this situation, about the girlfriend, only about, you know, life in general, or job, or whatnot, and that uh, I could... I could find out about him through my husband, because right now he doesn't want to talk because I am, too, uh, this is his quote, I'm too much in his head. Okay. So, so he said he doesn't want to talk to you, period? Not just... For it's... now. Yeah, for now, no. Not, okay. Not, about nothing, yes. Okay. So that's something, you know, worth looking at for yourself of, well, let me ask you, what do you think led to that? What What could you see making him make that decision? Um, I think all his life, uh, he hasn't, he has seen me as a source of some unhappiness in his life. I, I agree, I was a, a, a 
maybe tough mothers. Mm-hmm. I can give you an example. Okay. Um, do I have time? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Please go ahead. I can. I can tell you one thing that I know. Um, when he was uh, a teenager, maybe fourteen, fifteen, he got angry one time, and he either kicked the wall in his room or punched the wall and made a hole, mm-hmm. a big hole in there. And then uh, my my husband wanted to fix the sheetrock, and I said to my husband, you know, don't fix it right away. Let it stay on the wall so he can see uh, of, uh, the uh, you know the consequences, consequences mm-hmm. of. Uh, getting so angry that you lose control over your uh, body even and you do such a thing and then i later many years ago uh, many years later my son told me that he remembered that incident and he told a psychologist his therapist about that and he said my mother didn't let my father to write uh, fix fix the uh, wall right away and the psychologist told him that your mother wanted to shame you. Mm-hmm. And I, when my son told me that, I said, I don't know how the psychologist put herself, it was a woman, in my head and knew why I did that. I didn't want to shame you. If I wanted to shame you, I would tell, for instance, your aunt, your uncle, come and see what he did. Mm-hmm. You see how what he did? I didn't talk to anybody about that. Nobody else knew. I wanted you to see the consequences of your anger. Right. Now, and but I could... This is a, it, a lot of things that, you know, yeah. I had no idea that that, I, because shaming him was not, not in my mind. But here, he has all things that he remembers, and then he goes, and then he, uh, things happen that I didn't even know. Well, let so me let me actually. That's what I mean. That yeah. maybe I was I was too tough. Mm-hmm. Well, I was gonna say as a, a psychologist myself, who unfortunately has probably done that before, where I've told someone, well, you know, something your parents did was this way or that way. Although I I know, I know that's one of the cliches of therapy is that everything gets blamed on the mom and dad. Um, that word blame is the one that I, I take issue with because my general framework or mindset is we try to understand what happened knowing that there's impact so you did some things and they've impacted him doesn't mean you had bad intentions i'm sure you did not and it doesn't mean you're to blame or you're bad but we want to understand what you did and how it impacted him and also um how that can now impact your relationship at the current time with him because that's what we want to look at not were you wrong or right you know, right. so, uh, but you, you yourself were saying that um, you feel that you were tough on him. Uh, and I know as soon as I asked you that, you went to a story where you feel like you weren't, but he thought you were, or the therapist might have made him believe that way. But in what ways do you feel like you might have been tough that you recognize? I, I know that I always uh, would uh, emphasize they're doing good in school. Okay. Uh, it was very important, very okay. important. So putting a lot of pressure on grades and performance. Uh, because also because all my kids, all three of them, are really very bright. They mm-hmm. are above average. So you you expect them. And I mean, right now he's not unhappy that he's an actuary and he has such a good job and mm-hmm. such good income. I, I, yeah. I, if you want something good, you have to work hard. Right. So, you know, as I mentioned, the 
the even asking you about that's not to find how you were bad or wrong or to blame you. But another thing you brought up there was that you shared it, but shared why it was actually good. So I'm not saying let's find something and say, let's say how bad you were, but is there something where you say, okay, this is some way I think I might've hurt my son or affected him in some way that might've affected our relationship. I think I was hard. I know I was maybe compared to some parents. I was hard because of the way we grew up, you know, they didn't ask for our opinion at all. You know that. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I also not know something else that I learned from your father to say, look, I might have, I definitely must have done, made a lot of things that were mistakes. But I, I wanted all my kids to know that uh, it, it, I did my best. Sure. I did the best I knew how. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I emphasized the things that were important in my yeah. opinion in my mind now have i made mistakes i'm sure i have sure could i be could i go easier on them of course i have i could mm -hmm. but i didn't i remember actually something i mean there was one time there was a very expensive uh, brand of pants that he wanted and i said you know that is really unreasonable if I can buy a pair of pants for $15 and this one cost 12 times more I will not buy that and I said you know what now I say you know I should have bought you a pair of pants nothing would mm -hmm. have happened although he didn't even remember that case mm -hmm. I remembered it and I said I should have not been so difficult and I would say okay my son wants this and it's 12 times the price of a regular pants, but you know, why not buy it for him once? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But okay. I remember, he didn't remember that one. He remembered the one with a hole the in wall. the wall. Yeah, and there's, but, and there's probably more than that, that obviously not just bad, but even just has impacted your relationship with him. And I know you asked me about time and we're at a commercial break. I, what I'd like to do in the next segment, if we can continue is, Let's now look at just your relationship with your son and what we can do, because that's the one that you have more, much more influence. And I'd want you to focus on more than his relationship with this woman. And now maybe it's just a temporary thing. He doesn't want to talk to you, but clearly something is going on there. So when we come back, I want us to discuss you and him and okay. what's happened and also maybe what you can do going forward when it comes to that. Okay. Okay. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we were with the caller. Let's go to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. You know, before we get into the conversation about you and your, your son's relationship, one thing I, I did want to mention earlier that I'll say right now is about expectations. And, um, of course, as a parent, you're going to have expectations for your kids and hopes that they have a, a certain type of life. And we um, all have that, whether we realize it or not. And one thing with your son to be aware of is, it might be good to let go of some of those expectations. And I'm not saying he necessarily will have to be with this woman or should be with her, but that even him getting married or having kids might not be the path for him. Um, as I was saying before, if it's what he wants, I would want it for him, but not to push him that that has to be the way his life has to go because people get married and have kids when they don't want to. And that's really a bad idea. Um, 
at the same time, people sometimes avoid those things, even though they want them because of their anxiety. And that's where we want to help them overcome that to get what they want. But at the end, ultimately, it's what they want and making sure we don't impose an expectation of what life is supposed to look like um, onto them, because that might not be what they want and even what they're made for, what they're uh, prepared to have. But coming back to you and him, as I mentioned, that's the relationship you do have more control over rather than him and this woman. Um, And him saying he doesn't want to talk to you at all is telling us something now. could be just he's going through something, but I wanted you to look at that because I'm sure you're not happy with that and especially not being happy with the relationship and now feeling you can't even talk to him. I'm sure that's making it even harder on you of just sitting with this. Um, So what have you seen and what do you want to see with with you and him and let's let's look at that relationship more deeply if i can just say something sure. about my expectations and we shouldn't you know impose our expe- expectations on our children i have to tell you after my son told me whatever about not monogamous and all those things uh, for instance for the whole time that he was dating this older much older woman i didn't even say that i'm not happy with that and I was actually happy because they were, it seemed that they could, had good time together and good relationship. Mm-hmm. And I, I, then I said it's better than having, uh, you know, numerous relationships with younger women who can cause their own problems. I was happy. I never gave him a hard time. I never told him you are wrong. Uh, nothing. I let him be. Mm-hmm. from the very beginning after all he said to me and I, I actually now during the commercials I was thinking that um, my son it's not that he doesn't have any good um, memories when it comes to me as a mother it, I, he does that but I think he picks and chooses when, if we are going for instance right now he he chooses to only remember the bad parts. Mm-hmm. But if nothing like that is happening, he remembers how, you know, I was close to him and I, I did dedicated my life to my kids. And I did the best I could. Sure. I, I'm sure you did. And, and that, that I didn't imply that in any way or think no, that I at all. I didn't mean that yeah. you implied. I yeah. mean that he chooses sometimes not to remember those and sometimes he does remember those Mm -hmm. so right now because i was against his you know his uh, present uh, relationship Mm -hmm. because actually i see it's like i see imagine you're seeing your son standing uh, at a different uh, at a difficult uh, intersection and you want to tell him don't cross Mm-hmm. And you can't. This is how I feel. But when he he heard this, then he he chooses to uh, r- remember all the bad things. And I have apologized for the bad things. And I have said I wish I could change. I wish I knew better, but I can't. So let's build the future. Yeah. And I don't know how to how to you know, put this situation to the side, because he told me, can I ask you, mom, not to think about it? And I told him, frankly speaking, I cannot. I wish I could. I wish I could unplug it. Mm -hmm. 
there was parts of my brain that I would unplug, then I would not think about their relationship, but I cannot. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, you were being honest, you can't just shut that part off and and not think about it. Going back to your relationship with him and the, you know, that you've you've said you're sorry and you want to move forward from it, which I think is, is great because often parents don't even give their kids that much. Um, what can also happen at times is we make a general apology, like I made mistakes and I'm sorry, let's move, but we want to move forward. But the person who, you know, in this case, your son, might not get the sense that you're acknowledging the specific things or that you're attending to how he felt hurt, whatever that was. And mm -hmm. you weren't definitely all bad. You, I'm sure you, like anyone, made some mistakes or could have done some things better or hurt him in some ways, but you did a lot of very good things. And the things you even did that were not good for him were with good intentions. But I see this happen often where people say, okay, everything I did, I'm sorry for. Let's move on. And to the person who was hurt it can feel very it, it could feel a bit empty that right. well what is it that you you know because even when i asked you you said some things but you kind of backpedaled on them and so m maybe there is something there it seems like there's a lot happening right now with him and, and this woman that's impacting things but just something for you to consider that it's wonderful that you acknowledged and apologized for shortcomings you uh, may have had as a parent and how they might have hurt him that really is great but if we really want to move past something and I know you're saying you listen to my father and, you know, past is in the past and move forward. But really to put something in the past, we have to heal the past also, right? So if I break my leg and run on it every day, it won't stay in the past. It won't heal and I'll still be in pain and won't be able to recover. So we have to heal the past to move forward from it to be able to put it behind us. And so it's just something to consider when you're going a bit deeper with him, if you have that opportunity at some point of even trying to acknowledge, asking him, seeing if you can think of things, but to make it more getting into the specifics of it to show there's an actual acknowledgement of this was something I wish I did differently for you, or I could see how when I did this, it was hurtful for you. And and being aware of the quick reaction we have to say, but just, just know I, I tried my best, or this is how we were taught, or I didn't know any better, which can be helpful, but making sure you stay with his pain. That it's just, you know what, I could see how that was just not easy for you that I put so much pressure on your school I think that was too much right and just sitting with him and letting him then share with you yeah mom sometimes it felt this or and he might even share actually you know mom sometimes it was nice because it did push me or I would get you know behind or whatever it is you know but making sure the focus is on his pain and his experience yeah. and first that means you have to accept which I hope you you do that I was a good mom I tried my best you know those things you already have internalized so it doesn't have to come up in every conversation again the reminder of that it's that's already established within yourself and you can accept that now we're going to look at okay how was my son you know hurt by things i did even with the best intentions the the analogy i sometimes think of is let's say you fed him strawberries every day which is a fruit and it's good for him and then when he's 14 we find out he was allergic to it the whole time you didn't know you were doing your best but something you did still had an impact on him and we can't ignore the impact that it had on him so that's just something to be mindful of in in future conversations of can you in repairing that past try to get connections to his pain or how he might have been impacted by what you did that's actually very brilliant what you just said and it reminds me that um he told me actually and i think this very recently that um when he would say about something that hurt him mm -hmm. i would say you know, life is difficult. Mm -hmm. 
me thinking that by saying to him, hey, life is difficult. You have to be ready for pain. It was, he said that I felt that you didn't recognize my pain. Mm. Here I am thinking that I have to tell him be strong because life is difficult. Yeah. And here he feels that I didn't uh, accept his pain or didn't feel his pain. And uh, as a parent, I don't know, as a parent, um, I, I told him, you know, the, the, I heard something that the worst thing you hear is not that you have cancer. The worst thing is that your son has a cancer mm-hmm. or your child has a cancer. So when I heard about his pain, it hurt me so much that I had to kind of, you know, I don't want to say push it under the rug, yeah. but make it less by saying, hey, life is difficult. Yeah. And that made that, uh, it had a bad influence on him. Mm-hmm. And we, it, I think what you said was actually quite, uh, you conceptualized it quite well. His pain was so hurtful, and then especially to think what I maybe had caused his pain, and right. because that can be so hard, hard to tolerate, we try to get rid of it as quickly as we can. And that's the challenging part is sitting with that discomfort of, oof, something I did, even with the best intentions, but something I did hurt my son. And that's the most yeah. painful thing for me. But can I sit with that long enough to make his pain feel validated and to possibly heal what has come between us now? Which is very hard. It's very easy for me to say it. But when you're sitting with it, it's difficult because... We want to, yeah, now let me turn it into a lesson or show him how, well, life isn't always fair. Things are going to happen and help build him up. But by doing that, it does invalidate his pain between you and him. Because we're not saying someone else hurt him. And even then it might feel invalidating. He's saying, mom, you did this thing. And you're the one that can now fix it, not by changing the past, but by really acknowledging it and sitting here with me in that. It's really, really difficult because our reaction is always to go away from pain. And I'm asking you to go into the most painful uh, experience you can have, which is that of hurting your son and feeling that you are the one that caused that pain. Yeah. Hmm. So here we are with that. That's going to be hopefully some conversations in the future that you might be able to have with him of showing him that you can sit there. And as I mentioned, it's very easy to say, but when it comes up, your reaction is going to be to go away from it. And so I will, right. you know, encourage you to recognize that even you could bring that up to him that I think I was doing this. It was hard for me to sit there with your pain and feeling that maybe I caused it. And because right. of that, it could make you feel like it was not real or I was invalidating it. Um, that itself might be something that makes the conversations easier to have, but it'll still be tough. And again, it's that reminder of even with all these conversations, it doesn't take away that you were a mom who was a good mom who tried her best always for her kids. That part will always be there. But recognizing that and even doing your best, things happen that were hurtful to them. And let's right. look at those things. Right. So I understand now that I have to go back and ask specific questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's going to be, you know, especially with where you're at with him now, of course, that might not be the next conversation you have because right now you're in a, you're probably gonna need to reconnect with him at some point or give him space to come back because he's, he's asking for that space. So it probably won't be the next conversation you have. And I wouldn't want you to push it too forward because he, he might need you more to reconnect and feel 
like you're on the same page about what's going on with him and his life now, but definitely something to keep in mind for future conversations and trying to repair and build your relationship even more strongly with him, as which I mentioned is, is the relationship most in your control when it comes to the situation. But you are, um, you're thinking that we cannot have any influence on him going back to the, you know, yeah. and issue I, with the right. girlfriend. I, and I know that was your, your, your intention of your call. And, yes. and as I mentioned, you know, probably we can't do much about it. It doesn't mean you don't have any influence. Um, I do also think, you know, you talked about that intersection and you see your son at an intersection and I could understand where you're like, well, don't go this way, go that way. This way is painful, that way is not, or it's better for you. Um, but we do have to always always give space to the person to make their own choice, even when they're younger, but especially at 45, where it's not your decision to make. So influence, yes, and especially if he asks you to explore it. But again, it's to help him make his best decision, not we're going to make the right decision for him. So he's going to have to figure out what's going on. And even here, you know, I, I, if you had the chance to speak to him and if he was even more open, maybe there's a guilt about ending things. You know, there, there's a lot of things that are probably going on, but the more space we give him to share them without already saying, well, you shouldn't even like her or she's a bad mom or she belly dances or she, you know, whatever it is that you don't like about her, the more we give him space to share his own concerns, it could help him make the best decision rather than, like you said, okay, well, I don't like the belly dancing and maybe it's coming from some of my own, you know, mindsets and ways that I'm looking at things. That's not going to be the way to help him make his decision. But if he's whatever it is, I'm afraid to end things or I'm feeling this way about it or, you know, now I feel in it, I don't know how to get out of it. Then we can help him make his decision again, not that the ultimate goal is to break them up, but for him to make what's the best decision for him. So, um, that's my thought is to connect with him for your relationship with him and yes if you're then connected with him he might want more of your advice or to know what's going on but because he already thinks you're against it you have to just be ready that when the conversation starts if you already come in with, with well but see she's doing this or can't you see that you're not you know whatever it is that your reasons that they should break up he's probably going to go back into his shell when it comes to you again so we're going to have to leave some space for him to come to you both in just communicating, but also in talking about her, talking about this relationship, because you're so set on it that I think as soon as he opens his mouth about it, it's going to be hard for you not to, you know, give your input. So he said, can you stop thinking about it? No, maybe you won't be able to stop that. But can you hold back from sharing what's on your mind about it? Yes. And so if you talk to him, you're going to have to do more of that, especially initially giving him space to talk to you about the relationship rather than you telling him what's good or bad about it. Yeah, I, I've said enough on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what he basically, say that's what he told you essentially, but also, you know, and it could be, you know, not to give more fuel to the fire you already have, but it could be because the things you said resonated with him. He's like, uh-oh, maybe those are true. Or it could just be also when others, you know, when we're trying to figure out a relationship, it's hard enough when it's just us and that person, but when other people share a lot of their opinions, it makes it even harder for us. So it, it's hard to know, but he, you're going to have to give him a little bit of space here. Uh, he's asked for that. And so for you to you know, force him or really push him to talk to you, I think is not the best thing. If it was Mother's Day, it was just maybe, you know, two weeks ago or so. So it hasn't been so long. I hope he will reach out to you and then we'll see how those conversations go. Um, but again, as I, I mentioned, 
to me, the biggest thing is for you to focus on your relationship with him more than his relationship with her. Thank you so much, Doctor, My for giving me all this time and all this uh, good thoughts. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed talking you. with uh, you. Uh, one more question. Yes. Is there anywhere I could listen to this again? Yeah, so or it'll on be the, on, on the Radio on Hamra app. Yeah. Uh, things on, on, online? Sure, yeah. So it'll be on the Radio Hamra app, I think, soon. But also, I upload them to my SoundCloud page and then a podcast on Spotify and also Apple Podcasts. So it's all it's accessible through all those ways. Where is that Apple Podcast and what yeah, else? Yeah, Apple Podcast. If you have an Apple phone, it's just on there. Spotify is a, another app, or if you go to SoundCloud, if you just search my name, you'll you'll be able to find it as well. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sure. Nice talking. I really appreciate. My pleasure. Nice talking. You take care. Thank you. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I uh, wanted to talk in this segment about perfectionism. Um, it came up even with the, the client or the, the caller uh, in a way about some obsession or, or OCD or perfectionism. And it's something that um, I notice in a lot of my clients. I notice it in myself as well. And like many psychological terms or things related to our psyche, we often use the word or we hear it used socially in ways that can minimize what it actually is. So people say, oh, I'm such a perfectionist, just like they say, I'm so OCD um, or I'm so bipolar. And maybe you feel like, okay, your mood changed a bit or you might feel like you like things in order um, or you don't like making mistakes, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're a perfectionist or you have OCD or you're actually bipolar, like having bipolar disorder because those are far more serious things. Often what people are talking about is within the much more healthy range of just what we experience as humans, but not something that can be really hurtful. And perfectionism is the same way because, um, of course, no one likes to make mistakes. No one thinks it's fun to find out they were wrong or they did something that was wrong uh, in, in a moment. Or if you're, let's say, playing basketball and if you take a shot, you want to make it. You don't feel... Uh, good to miss it. But we know that that's part of being, it's just part of life, part of reality is that things uh, are not always going to be good or right or go the right way. Uh, so it, no one likes uh, making mistakes. But when people have perfectionism, we're talking about a very strong reaction to anything that can be construed as making a mistake, getting it wrong, not doing the right thing. And it can be very painful and debilitating to someone who's going through it because they're constantly living in this fear of making a mistake, of getting it wrong. So each thing that they're doing, rather than being a chance to show uh, being good at something, enjoying something, it more is a um, another time where they can get things wrong. So the fear of failure, the fear of making a mistake with perfectionism, it looms so large that it really sucks the joy out of everything. Even let's say I was talking about playing basketball. You take a shot. If you make it, it's like, okay, oh, good. There's a relief that you didn't miss, but there isn't as much of an enjoyment that you got it right or you made the shot. And so the perfectionism, it is so intertwined with our sense of self and our self-worth that at each moment you are either proving you're at least worthy or you're proving that you're unworthy of love and acceptance. So it can be really um, a very hurtful thing. And even I, I read an article and I've shared it 
many times this theme because for me it was very powerful that when we look at suicidality people who attempt suicide we very often think about things like depression and hopelessness which very much are part of that but this article was talking about perfectionism and how this can be very much related to um, suicide and suicidal thinking and the article explained it quite well how this makes sense so first off you're a perfectionist it could very much lead to you being hard on yourself because inevitably you're going to make mistakes and get things wrong and so these individuals can beat themselves up and get into really negative self-talk and feel very bad um, and then unfortunately next step is they'll hide that from other people if they are struggling in some way because of that perfectionism they can't have uh, even small mistakes, let alone have big flaws or big issues. So they're more likely to hide, cover up their issues, which only makes them worse and also prevents them from getting help, which is another big um, aspect of that. So as a perfectionist, not only do you not want to make mistakes or get things wrong, um, or not just not like those things to be very painful for you, you won't want to ask for help. You shouldn't need anyone else to help you do things. And so as a result, People who have perfectionism are less likely to seek out help, especially for things like depression or anxiety that they might be dealing with. And then because of that, they can feel very stuck and then feel like they have nowhere to go and feel like it's too shameful to ask for that help or reach out and they might not turn to anyone and sadly make a choice that they can't come back from. And so I don't mean to say if you see someone with perfectionism, they're at high risk for suicide, but just recognizing how... Uh, how painful it could be for the person experiencing it and how when it's really a perfectionism in a genuine sense it's, it's quite harmful and it's not just something oh yeah like I'm a perfectionist because you know you, you don't make mistakes or you don't like making mistakes um, now making it less intense I went all the way to suicide and now looking at other aspects of it uh, a big part of perfectionism that also interferes with someone's life is that if all of life is about not making mistakes, not getting it wrong, then we know that that's going to mean you're going to do less things and you're going to do less risky things or take less chances, both of which will negatively impact your life. Um, you know, I'm a big sports fan and I've even recognized if I'm watching, let's say basketball and they say, oh, this person is seven for seven from three today. So let's say they, they've made all of their shots or all of their three point shots. If they're about to take a next shot, I recognize there is some anxiety in me as I'm seeing them shoot the ball, or if I think they might shoot the ball, which is coming from, oh, the perfectionism, the perfection might be broken. They might lose that perfection, which seems like the good thing. It feels really nice. And so I recognize that when I'm watching even sports and it's someone else, that that feeling will come up. And that's what we can feel if we're a perfectionist is that if we're afraid of making a mistake well then even taking the next shot doing the next thing feels a little bit risky it's easier not to do things so unfortunately per perfectionists sometimes if they have a deadline and they have to get they feel like they have to get something done they can but when it comes to generating their own work they're very unlikely to want to take risks or do something because each time they do something it's a chance to get things wrong or make a mistake and so perfectionism goes hand in hand with procrastination and people who um, are perfectionists have a very hard time getting things started, especially things like, let's say, uh, writing an essay for school where it's open-ended. Um, there's 
a very difficult place of where do I start? How do you write the perfect sentence or get things exactly right, which makes you avoid doing things. So unfortunately, perfectionism leads to significant avoidance as a way of dealing with things because by avoiding doing something new, avoiding um, trying something, you at least momentarily avoid making a mistake. Unfortunately, this leads to then the cycle of beating yourself up for not doing something so you can feel like you're not being perfectly productive or getting things done. And so the person might find themselves in a, a shame cycle where it's hard to get started, hard to continue, um, and then they might beat themselves up because they haven't gotten things done. And so that could be in more regular types of things. But then when it comes to taking risks, trying something new, being creative, if you have a strong sense of perfectionism, it can be very hard to get started with things and to take a risk because you're afraid of getting it wrong. Why try something new? Keep doing the same thing. And so that perfectionism can seep into this sense of uh, stretching ourselves, trying something creative, trying something different, or trying even the same things, but in a different way. Because if all we're doing is avoiding getting it wrong, it makes us want to avoid any chance we have that makes it more likely for us to get things wrong. So if you notice the perfectionism in yourself, which many of us have it in some degree, as I was saying, for people who have it in a serious degree, that's when it's very harmful. But you might notice some level of it. It could be important to recognize how this holds you back or in what ways it might hold you back from doing certain things. And if you go even deeper, you'll likely recognize somehow it's tied into your sense of self. Uh, even the way you might identify yourself or things you experience from childhood of not making mistakes or mistakes being such a bad thing or your value being so tied into your performance that you feel the need to show that you're constantly good and constantly not getting things wrong. All of this taking away from your uh, experience and for your right to just be a human being who will make mistakes, gets things wrong. Not only that, those are the ways we grow. If you take away all your chances to make mistakes, you're taking away your chances for growth and learning, and that can be really harmful. Um, in the next break, I'm going to continue this theme, or the next uh, segment, continue this theme of perfectionism, um, but a even more detailed sports, not analogy, but example of this uh, that I, I find um, almost funny because I hear it so much when we look at talk about basketball. So I will be nerding out a bit about basketball after the break. If you'll uh, let me do that, uh, we'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, in the previous segment, I was talking about perfectionism, and I will get to the, the basketball um, example I was mentioning, but did want to share some more thoughts about it that uh, I thought about during the break. Um, so, you know, when we look at even perfectionism, like any personality trait or quality, it can have some good and bad to it. So I was emphasizing the bad, which really is a lot. And overall, it's um, can be difficult on the individual who carries that characteristic. Um, but it can also lead to people, for example, performing well in, in certain ways that does reinforce it and give them some praise and might even be good. So if you are, let's say, going to a dentist to do a root canal, some level of perfectionism and how they take care of that root canal can feel good that they make sure they don't leave anything. I'm not a dental, uh, a dentist to know, but I think you don't want to leave anything uh, behind. So you want to be 
as close to perfect as possible. So some of that perfectionism or even uh, obsessive compulsive personality can be helpful there. And this is what we often find is that uh, certain personality traits might help us in certain aspects of our life, but then we bring them other places and they cause us dysfunction or pain. So if you bring that same mindset into your relationships and try to make everything perfect or have no mistakes, it's usually going to take the good out of it. Um, so that's one thing is that there's even some positive aspects or it's more complicated than just to say it's all bad. Um, we want to strive for goodness and greatness, but not in a way where if we fail or have a mistake, it makes us feel horrible or makes us feel bad. Um, and another aspect of perfectionism or this type of experience is that you might feel it in a lot of areas of your life if you have it, but often you'll feel it more strongly in some versus others. And that's usually the things that you identify with or you feel pride in or feel good about. So, you know, I was mentioning a dentist. So for them, let's say if you tell them about their handwriting and it's not very good, they might not care. I'm like, oh yeah, my handwriting is really sloppy. But when it comes to their dentistry, they'll be very uh, defensive about making a mistake or not wanting to get something wrong because there, um, the perfectionism or being perfect has a lot of value or that image of being a good dentist is so valuable to them that it's very hurtful if they, um, you know, something's going wrong there. So you might notice that as well because you might think, I I've also heard this with parents with their kids, oh, they can't be that, you know, perfectionistic because I've seen them do this or that and they're sloppy or messy, but sometimes we're uh, able to compartmentalize that to some degree where it doesn't have to be in all areas or some areas we completely let go of. Even actually, if you're a perfectionist, if you see you can't be perfect at it or really good at it, you might just let go of it because you feel like there's no hope. Uh, a perfectionist doesn't like to just be okay at something. They either want to be really good or they might just pretend like the thing doesn't exist. Um, the basketball example I wanted to use is, um, so those of you that are history of basketball fans, you know, or any sport, we know we talk about who's the best ever or the goat, the greatest of all time in any sport. Um, and for basketball, for most people, you hear Michael Jordan. That's one of the, the names that and I probably would say that's a, a very convincing one to say he's the best basketball player of all time. I also think these conversations are very uh, messy, um, maybe pun intended because my favorite soccer player is messy, but um, they are messy when we try to compare people from different generations and what's the metric of make someone the best player. I, I think a lot of these conversations actually people just enjoy partially because there isn't a easy, solid answer. If there was, the conversations would just end. Who's the best this? So-and-so, we'll stop talking. But people like, okay, no, actually, I think it's LeBron because his career has been longer that he's been good. Oh, no, if it's just championships, you can say Bill Russell because he won, I, I, I think, 10 as a player, one as a coach. So people like to have these conversations because it's interesting. We just bring in different uh, elements of sports and what we appreciate. And, of course, when we're sports fans, as much as we think it's about them, it's much more uh, tells us about us. Who you like often is relevant to who you are as a person. The way you connect with them might reflect who you are. So um, there's a lot of psychology there of sports and being a sports fan. Me, someone who is very involved or really enjoys sports, I see aspects of it in myself where I identify with the players. Or I was talking about perfectionism. I've noticed that I can be harder on um, players I like than if I'm watching another player. 
which I think is a reflection of being harder on myself in a perfectionistic type of way. So uh, it's interesting to look at these different dynamics, but the conversations always continue of who's the greatest. That's just, you hear that all the time. And so when it comes to basketball, um, Michael Jordan has a pretty good resume when it comes to that. But one of the things I hear, which always bothers me in the conversation of why people say, or one of the things they say is so great about his career was that when it came to winning the championship in basketball, it's called the, the NBA Finals, his record was 6-0. and He went to the finals six times, and he won it all six times. And so that's a big thing, like, wow, 6-0, and he never lost in the finals. And, and people love that, and it looks so good. And, and I can get that. There is this really nice feeling when something is perfect in that way. No mistakes. Six appearances, six wins, zero losses. And so they say that a lot compared to, let's say, LeBron, who I think lost four times in the finals, um, or, or other players who've lost in the finals, that this adds to his his resume. But I think it shows to me how strongly attached we are and obsessed we are with perfection, that it actually makes us lose sight of what's even what sports is even all about, which is you're trying to win the game every time you play the game, Right. That's the objective. And if a player wins or helps his or her team win, we would say that was better than if they didn't contribute and the team lost. But when we look at this record of six and zero, six wins, zero losses, well, it doesn't include the other years where he didn't get to the NBA finals. So he didn't have a chance to, to potentially lose. So theoretically, what you'd be arguing is that if he went to the finals other years where his team was weaker, somehow whether it was his team, but or he helped carry his team to go further to win more games, but then to ultimately lose at the the last level, that would be worse than losing earlier. And so when I see people make this argument, it really is baffling for me because I see how much it shows that we like things to be perfect. Oh, you you never lost, right? So it's like if you went once and you won, at least you never lost. That would be a good thing. But I think that goes against even what we most people would think is important about life, which is to try to put yourself in the position where you have a chance to win, not just only go if you know you can win, let's say, or only do something where you know you can win. And that's actually what we see people do going back to perfectionism. Sometimes we only choose the battles that we already know we can win, right? So I'm, I'm going to do this thing because I know I'm going to win, or I'm going to pick this opponent because I know I can beat them and that feels good to win. And so if we make winning the most important thing and making sure you don't lose, what we actually do is we take away the opportunities to see even how good we are. So if you're lifting weights and you say, I'm only going to lift weights that I know I can comfortably pick up, that feels good. You never have the sense of failure in the sense of I couldn't lift the weight, but you'll never know how strong you are because you'll never put your body in a position where it's it's going to that limit. And the only way to go to that limit is you have to go past it. You have to try to lift 100 and say, oh, I couldn't lift 100. And now let me try 85. Okay, I can lift 85. And now I know how strong I am. But if I keep picking up 20 and saying, look how easy it is for me to do 20. I never make a mistake and my form is perfect and I'll never you know, fail at picking this up. I'll never see how strong I am. And so I see this in how a lot of us live our lives is that we try not to lose so much that we don't realize how much we lose by not trying to do things where we maybe can lose. 
and to me this is a a big lesson of life in general that in order to feel the good of life in the world we have to risk feeling bad if you want to feel the beauty of being loved and being in a loving relationship you have to risk heartbreak and heartache you, you can't do it any other way you can't say I want to get very close to someone or I want to um, be in a close romantic relationship but I don't want to be able to get hurt I don't want to you know lose in that way it's just not possible you have to open yourself up for that risk of being hurt of losing in that sense of it in order to have the possibility of having the good or if you want to become a parent you have to risk all the ways you could get hurt by God forbid something happening to your child or something happening in that relationship you are opening yourself up to that risk because you think it's worth what you can have as a result if you want to try something creatively and of course it's great I'm gonna make this song and people are gonna love my song well you have to risk that you make that song and no one even knows of your song or people dislike your song there isn't any other way to do it so if we focus just on I want to avoid losing we might not recognize how much we're losing in our life by doing that and making that the guiding force and the guiding principle of our life so yes when we look at a record like six and oh and it's not to take anything away from that it's still incredible what he accomplished i'm more looking at the way people see that six and oh and think of it that somehow that was better than if you know let's say in 1988 he took his team to the finals and lost he would be six and one that would be worse but that would mean that he won a lot of games that were actually games he maybe shouldn't have won or the team wasn't good enough to win but somehow they found a way but because we love that perfection so much we sometimes forget what's the the whole goal of this thing anyway what are we even trying to do what is it that we're looking for in life which is to have these opportunities to show who we are and to have those experiences that make life worth living so when you look back at your life I hope you have lots of defeats and lots of places where you made a mistake or you tried something and it went wrong because that tells me you tried things that were out of your comfort zone you tried things that you weren't quite sure you can do you tried something without knowing what the result would be but because you felt that it was worth it this is also why when I watch sports and I see sometimes in really big competitions let's say in the World Cup you see the losing team crying and I usually get pretty emotional watching it and you see both sides crying the winners are crying the losers are crying and I think that's good it just shows they care so much the winners of course feel good and they're crying possibly tears of joy but the ones who lost there's a sense of how close they were to it how much they wanted to win and to me that's actually quite wonderful I hope we all do things where we care so much about what the outcome is or we care so much about getting a certain result because it matters to us not doing something that feels comfortable or easier we don't care about but putting ourselves on the line in some way finding a project that is passionate for you that you really want it to work and you put your all into it and maybe it doesn't work you have to open yourself up to that risk or be okay with that risk of what can go wrong in order to be able to possibly enjoy what can go right or what can come of that but that's a very hard thing to do to put ourselves in that position and I just say this for all of us myself included to keep that in mind that we don't 
shy away from taking the chances because we might fail or because it might not work out. Because that's the only way we can do something that makes it worth doing, makes it worth um, putting our all into and in every area of life from relationships to creative pursuits professionally. Uh, I was talking about physical activity. Everything that we do, we have to be prepared to lose, especially in the moment, if we want to ever feel that beautiful feeling of victory of winning something or winning at some project or some relationship. And by winning, I don't mean how we win against someone, but sometimes it's winning with someone when we talk about relationship. But we can only do that if we risk putting ourselves out there. So don't chase perfection and don't think that if someone is doing it perfectly, that means they did it right. Maybe they didn't try hard enough to do things that were out of their comfort zone or were a stretch. Let's push ourselves to look at it differently and to see our lives differently. Let's not just fail to lose. Let's make sure we don't fail to take the opportunities where we have a chance to do something we really would want to do. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulaqui, San Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.